The church is called by various names in the New Testament, but none is more glorious than the church as the communion of saints. And when the pressures of the secular culture would detract us from significant things such as the kingdom of God, the real saints show up in church. So I'm delighted to be part of that communion tonight as long as it lasts. We're going to continue now with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'll be reading this evening from the fifth chapter, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 5. I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, this evening as we contemplate together the fruits or results of our justification in Christ, we pray that we may think deeply about these consequences, that we might never take them for granted, but they may be the occasion in our lives of daily profound, sustained gratitude. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I touched lightly on the first verse of Romans 5 when I pointed out that it begins with the term therefore, indicating a conclusion that follows from what had preceded it, where Paul had laid out for us in great detail and in great depth, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And sometimes when we look at concepts uh, or doctrines such as these, we shrug and say, so what? Well, here is the so what set forth for us in the conclusion of Paul's treatment when he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, again, Our justification is a fait accompli. It is something that has already taken place the moment that we believed, not something that we must wait for purgatory to accomplish. But therefore, having been justified by faith, the first consequence of that, Paul declares, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I want to spend some time this evening looking at this first fruit of justification, that we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard me tell an account that I had in my early childhood. I guess I was six years old at the time, and we were living temporarily in an apartment in Chicago. And this summer afternoon, I was playing stickball on the street in front of our apartment, and I remember it as though it were yesterday because it was my turn at bat, and home plate was a manhole cover in the middle of the street. And I was delighted to be up, as it were, until my turn at bat was rudely interrupted by this spontaneous outcry of great noise and carryings-on that completely uh, amazed me as I saw people running out of buildings, ladies with aprons, with pots and pans and wooden spoons pounding on the pan, and they were screaming and yelling in such unrestrained jubilation I had no idea what was going on except for the fact that my stickball game had just been ruined. So I was not happy with what was going on until my mother was numbered among these women who had come out of the apartment building, and she came rushing up to me with tears streaming down her eyes, crying out loud, it's over, it's over. And she grabbed me and hugged me as we were experiencing together the joy of VJ Day and the end of World War II. That meant, of course, in our home that my father's tenure in the service was over and that he would be restored to our family. And even as a six-year-old child, I knew some great joy about that experience. But, you know, if I can just go forward a couple of years after that, several of my buddies in our hometown outside of Pittsburgh were going to sleep out one summer evening. We pitched the tent, we roasted the marshmallows, and we did all that sort of thing, and then we went into the tent, and one of the fellows began to talk about the atomic bomb, about the things that were going on in Berlin the conflict of the great powers of the world. And the fellows began to describe what would happen if the bomb fell in our community. And I remember being so terrified that I became sick at my stomach, and I fled the sanctuary of that tent, went home, knocked on the door at night. My mother was again surprised to see me, thinking that I was going to spend the evening with our friends. And I just told her that I was so scared I had to come home. You see, when we have peace in this world, we may rejoice for a season, but peace is something that just simply never lasts. One of the most infamous photographs coming out of the early days of the Great War, was that of Neville Chamberlain, 
when he was Prime Minister of England. And you recall after he had negotiated with Hitler a certain peace arrangement, I believe it was in Munich, and he was, had his photograph taken when he was leaning out of a balcony and he was holding his umbrella and he uttered the words, we have achieved peace in our time. And while he was uttering those words, Hitler was mobilizing the Blitzkrieg into Eastern Europe. Peace in this world is fragile. It quickly gives way to new hostilities. Those of us who remember World War II remember the many, many years of the Cold War that followed after it, the conflict in Korea, and then the tremendous war that broke out in Vietnam. And it seems like almost at all times our nation is engaged in some kind of war. And even when we make peace and we have a truce where the hostilities end, very soon thereafter people will begin to rattle the sword, and we never know when the next conflagration will break out. But when we come to Romans 5, we have to understand the strong contrast that there is between the peace that we experience in conflict in this world and the peace about which Paul is writing to the Romans. Here he's talking about the end of the worst of all possible wars. I mentioned last week that I I spoke on this subject to some wealthy women many years ago, and they were basically bored to death because they saw no great joy in any announcement of peace with God because they didn't even know there was a war on. And that is the basic mentality of secular people in our culture today. You talk to them about war with God, they say, what war? They don't realize that at this very moment, the vast majority of the people that live in our country are engaged in a war of cosmic proportion. And here are the enemies, God and the people. The New Testament repeatedly describes the natural condition of fallen people as a condition of enmity, that by nature we regard God as our enemy. Now, few people will own up to that. They feign a kind of indifference about all things religious. Yet, the heart of man is described as being that which is recalcitrant, that it is reified, it has become hardened to the point that it no longer throbs and beats and pulsates with any spiritual life whatsoever. And the Scriptures tell us that in our natural condition, we do not want to have God in our thinking, and that by nature we are with at enmity with God. 
I once addressed a group of college students, I've mentioned this to you on another occasion, where there was a club on this university campus that was called the Atheist Club. And I was asked to address that club, and I told them at the end of the address that their problem was not that they didn't know that God exists, as we pointed out in Romans 1, but their problem was that they hated the God whom they knew exists. Well, you can imagine I needed a safe conduct, almost a police escort, to get out of that meeting. So great was the hostility of these people who denied up and down that they had any hostility at all towards their Maker. And yet, this is what the Scripture says, is all of us in our natural state. That's why the central motif of the gospel in the New Testament is the motif of reconciliation. And we ask about what is a necessary condition for reconciliation to take place. And you may say, well, people have to get together and talk things through, or we have to have a certain list of objectives that we manage in, in, in dealing with our uh, differences. Those things may be true, but the most important necessary ingredient for reconciliation to take place is estrangement. Where there's no estrangement, there's no need for reconciliation. Why does the New Testament repeatedly describe the ministry of Jesus as a work of mediation? It's because the God-man comes into a world that in its hostility towards God is estranged from God, and so the work of Christ is to be the mediator to bring these estranged parties together. He is to be the Prince of Peace to end the warfare that is so real. Now, again, we can understand if we look at all of the biblical texts that speak about our estrangement that, yes, indeed, by nature we are children of wrath, but it would seem that the only antagonist in this conflict between God and man is ourselves. But surely God is a God of love, He's a God of patience, a God of mercy, He's long-suffering, He's slow to anger, and all of those things we know about God. Certainly, He doesn't regard us as enemies, does He? You see, it's not that we're just at war with God, but God's at war with us, folks. The imagery in the Old Testament is the soldier whose bow is bent. He is the one whose chariots come to trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. The book of Romans began with Paul giving the lengthy exposition in the first chapter of this epistle of the reality of the wrath of God, which anger is directed against sinful people who refuse to honor Him as God, who refuse to manifest gratitude to Him, and whose basic penchant is to exchange the truth of God for a lie 
and engage in idolatry by serving and worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. When God looks at our idolatry, He is not at peace, but He is at war with us. And we maybe have come so hardened in our hearts, so stiff in our necks, that we've become at ease in Zion and think, oh, surely God could not be at war with us. Beloved, this is the legacy of 19th century liberal theology that captured the church in Europe and then was exported to the United States so that you have been born and raised in a country that tells you every day that we are all God's children and that God is a God of love who has no capacity for wrath, no capacity for judgment, and that God that you hear of every day in the marketplace is an idol. That God simply does not exist. But the God who is, is a holy God, so holy that He cannot bear to look at iniquity. And so that there is a basic revulsion in the very character of God for those of us who are engaged in cosmic treason every day of our lives. So we need reconciliation. We need the end to that estrangement. And what brings it is the good news of the gospel, the good news that publishes peace, the good news that says the war is over. For being justified, we have peace with God. God has taken the initiative to bring about that peace. We didn't surrender and sue for peace. But God has conquered us and in His gracious mercy has enabled us to be reconciled to Him through the work of His Son and has said to this, if you embrace my Son and you put your trust in Him, then all of the implements of war that are at my divine disposal I will set aside. And I will not set those tools of war aside for a season. You see, beloved, when God enters into a peace treaty with His people, it's a permanent peace. It's an eternal peace. He's never going to rattle the sword against you again. He may be displeased with you. He may be grieved by you, but once we have peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ, that peace is ours forever. And when Jesus was about to go to his death, and he gathered his frightened disciples in the upper room, the night in which they celebrated the Lord's Supper, he gave to them his last will and testament. Do you remember that? He said, Oh, my home in Capernaum, I leave to Peter. To you, Matthew, 
I leave my writing implements so that you can be accurate when you assess the taxes for the people. Thomas, I leave you assurance to get over your doubting characters. Huh? Oh, and my robe. I know the soldiers are going to want it, but I'm going to give it in my will and testament to you, Nathaniel. You know that's not what he said. He didn't have any worldly goods to bequeath to his friends. And so what was his legacy? He said to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. You see, it's this peace with God that settles the soul, that gives us the assurance of our forgiveness. Remember the Old Testament and we heard the decree come out to speak to Jerusalem. How's it go, Burke? Uh, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry unto her that her warfare is ended, for she has received double for her sins. See, that's the gospel in advance, where once we are justified, the Holy Spirit testifies to us, saying, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly to my people. Tell her the war's over, and peace has been declared. My conscience is not always at peace. I sin, and when I sin, my conscience is troubled, and I'm sure you experience the same thing, and sometimes we tend to look over our shoulder to see if God has bent the bow again and pointed at us, but He doesn't. When He looks at us, He sees us covered by the righteousness of Christ. We have the peace of Christ. Christ is our peace. And so for us, no more war with God. What a tremendous, tremendous thing. But that's only the first benefit that Paul mentions here. The second one is another one that we should never Take lightly. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me comment on that, that the peace comes through the peace agent, the peacemaker, the prince of peace, who is the medium, the means through which this peace is given to us. And then he goes on to say, through whom, that is through Christ also, We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of 
God. We have access to the Father through the Son. Do you know what that would mean to a God-fearing and devout Jew of the Old Testament who looks back at the whole scope of redemptive history, goes back to the day, to the dawn of creation, where God creates human beings in His own image, creates them but little lower than the angels, and gives them dominion over the whole world. And the best thing that Adam and Eve experience is unlimited access to God. Their greatest delight is when God walks in the cool of the garden, and they rush to commune with Him until that communion is totally ruined by the first transgression. So now instead of rushing to their Creator when He enters the garden, they flee from His presence, they head for the trees, and they hide themselves because now they are aware of their nakedness and they're overcome with the sense of shame. And I've pointed out to you when we looked at imputation that the very first work of redemption that God accomplishes is He makes clothes for His embarrassed creatures, covers their nakedness, covers their shame. Why? So they can be comfortable in His presence. Because if your sin is not covered, if your shame has not been removed, there's no way you can ever be anything but a fugitive. You can never be comfortable in God's presence. But despite that unbelievable work of condescension, of mercy and grace, still there were penalties that had to be paid. Oh, God had said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they did suffer spiritual death, but what He was telling them about was Thanatoth, physical death. And God postponed that judgment and let His creatures live, covered in His presence, but with no further access to the Garden of Eden. They were expelled. They were removed. They were driven out of paradise into the darkness. And not only were they sent into the darkness, but a no trespassing sign, as it were, was posted at the entrance to paradise. And for the first time, we read of earthly government being established, because the very essence of government in this world is legal force. Several years ago, when the Vietnam War was raging and the country was divided sharply in her views about that particular conflict, I was in Washington and was invited to the Senate cafeteria to have lunch with the senator whose name you would recognize because he was so vocal in his opposition to the Vietnam War, and he was a pacifist. And we were having lunch together, 
he called me his rabbi, and uh, he said to me, Rabbi, he said, uh, how do you feel about this, this war we're engaged in? And I mentioned a few things, and he said, well, I don't believe that any government ever has the right to force its people to do anything they don't want to do. I said, well, that's an interesting concept. That's the first time I heard that, Senator. I said, what you've just said to me, as I, if I understand you, that no government has the right to govern because no government rules by suggestions or recommendation. When governments enact laws, with those laws come agencies of law enforcement, where the law enforcement officers are authorized to force you to obey or suffer the consequences. And he had never thought about that. I couldn't believe it. A man could be a senator in the United States of America and never realize the very essence of government. Government is legalized force. In the, in the 13th chapter, we'll see it later, where Paul speaks of God giving the power of the sword to the civil magistrate, to earthly governments. Well, where's the first appearance in sacred Scripture of the power of the sword. It's with the sentry, the sentinel, that God places at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, where God puts an angel by the garden with a flaming sword. And the purpose of that sword is not to rattle it in case something goes wrong, but to use it as an instrument of coercion to make certain that no creature tainted by sin and defiance against God could ever enter into that place again. No access to the Garden of Eden. So the loss of access was one of the greatest losses that human beings have ever incurred. The significance of that loss is reiterated again and again through the Old Testament Scriptures. You remember that critical moment in the history of Israel when God summons Moses to Sinai to come up on the mountain to receive the law by which God will constitute the Israelites as a nation his people. And yet, before Moses can go on the mountain, God issues an edict to the people saying that no one among them was allowed to even come close to Mount Sinai, that the people had to go through days of cleansing and purification if they're even going to be witnesses from afar to that mountain that is shaking with thunder and a a volcanic eruption, an earthquake, and lightning, and the cloud when God appears. But the penalty is if anybody puts one finger or one foot on that holy mountain, they'll be executed. Why? Because God was going to be there 
and a no access sign was posted at the base of the mountain. Even in the deepest moments of the intimate life of the Jewish community in worship, where God comforted His people by saying that wherever you move as a nomadic people, you will take the tent of meeting with you, and wherever you stop, you pitch the tent and the, and the directions there for the establishment of the tabernacle was that when the tribes of Israel would encamp, they would encamp in a circle according to the tribes, so that at the very center of that circle would be the tabernacle. And the point of the circle was to ensure that no one tribe had greater access to the presence of God than any other tribe. And the glory of the people of Israel was in the tabernacle because it manifested the presence of God. And they said, we will not be moved because God is in the midst of her. Wasn't He? In this gracious condescension where God said, I will dwell with my people. But even in that grace, there was a limit. In the center of the camp was a tabernacle. In the center core of the tabernacle was the Sanctus Sanctorum, the Holy of Holies. And contained in the Holy of Holies was the mercy seat the throne of God. And in that chest were copies of the Decalogue, of some of the manna from the wilderness and Aaron's rod that had blossomed. It was on top of the mercy seat, the katalagai, that the blood of the offering was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. But of the whole nation of Israel, only one person was ever allowed inside the Holy of Holies. They could be in the holy place or in the outer court. You could come so close to God this far, no further. Only one person, and that only once a year, the high priest. And even the high priest could only go in there after going through elaborate ablutions and and. Uh, and, and rites of purification. And he entered the Holy of Holies in a spirit of fear and trembling. One tradition says, we don't know if it's accurate, that the great high priest would have a rope tied around one of his legs. And there were bells on his cassock so that if he would have a heart attack and fall over, the bells would ring. If he stayed in there too long, he could be dragged out by the rope because no one else was allowed to go in there even to save his life. Do you see the picture over and over and over again? No access. And to make certain of that, one of the most intricate things that was designed and 
installed in the tabernacle was the curtain or the veil. The veil of the tabernacle, later the veil of the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Very, very thick drapes of composition that could not be broken. And it seemed that nothing could break through that barrier that separated the people from the immediate presence of God until Golgotha. Until that afternoon in Jerusalem when the sun was blotted out of the sky in the middle of the day and it became pitch black even as night. And as Christ was the curse on the cross, there was an earthquake. And in that earthquake, Matthew tells us, the veil of the temple was ripped like tissue paper. Why? Why the earthquake? I heard a missionary say, when I read that, he says, it was like God the Father in the midst of the death of His Son took the earth by his hand and shook it for what they had done to his son. And in that earthquake, the wall of partition came crashing down by the work of the mediator, by the work of the Savior, who then when he rose from the dead, entered into the heavenly sanctuary, to the heavenly holy of holies, where he gives us access. And I tell you this, when we come together for worship on Sunday morning, as the author of Hebrews tells us, we no longer come to that mountain that was shaking and hidden in clouds and thunder and lightning where nobody can touch. But every time we come into worship, we come into the heavenly sanctuary the presence of Christ, the presence of angels, archangels, spirits of just men made perfect, the general assembly on high to the presence of God. Do you know why? Because we have access into His presence. There's no more veil. The angel's sword of flame has been doused with the blood of Christ And God welcomes us into His presence. There's no greater human experience in all the world than to have an overwhelming sense of being in the presence of God. The greatest of Christians testify that in their lifetimes, the times that they can recall an acute sense of being in the presence of God can be numbered on one hand. But if you've ever tasted it, you've had a taste of heaven. You've had a taste of that presence of divine glory that Christ has opened up for us. See, our justifications 
not just about forgiveness. It's not just about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It's not just about escaping the judgment of divine wrath, though it includes all of these things. But in our justification, we have peace. Peace that passes all human understanding. And where once we were barred admittance into the immediate presence of God, now we are called to enter into His presence boldly. Again, there's a difference between boldness and arrogance. We're never called to enter into the presence of God arrogantly. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how people speak so flippantly in such terms of familiarity about their relationship to Christ or to God, as if God is their pal, as if Christ is their peer. And I'll say, stop that. If Jesus Christ walked in this building tonight, everybody in here would be on his or her face in a posture of submission and of adoration, being overwhelmed by His glory. We have access by faith into this grace. Again, faith and grace are inseparably related, and this is the most unmerited favor that any creature, any sinner could ever experience, the grace of being allowed into the presence of God. Think about it. How would you feel if you got a written invitation for a personal audience with God? What would you wear? How would you feel? What would you say? But you see, that engraved invitation comes to all who are justified. It is a fruit of our justified. That is the grace of in which we stand in Christ Jesus and in which we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm just going to comment on that briefly. We'll expand on it further, God willing, next week. But it talks about the third aspect is the hope of the glory of God. Paul tells us that the three virtues, the triad of Christian virtues are faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity or love. But the New Testament again and again and again and again speaks of this concept of hope. That word hope or elpis in in the Greek is one of the richest terms that we find anywhere in the New Testament. And it is the gift that God gives to every person who is justified by faith. And that hope so differs, so radically differs from our normal human understanding of hope. People have been asking me all week, do you think the Steelers are going to win tonight? And I just say to them, I don't know. I'm not a prophet nor the son of the prophet. I hope so. And when I say I hope, I'm expressing my desire that certain things would come to pass. I 
sort of hold my breath and like tiny Alice cross my finger and say, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. But I certainly have no assurance that what I hope for will come to pass. Not so with the biblical concept of hope. The biblical concept of hope, the Bible uses the metaphor to describe it as the anchor of our souls. Our souls are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We have stability in our lives because in the midst of the tempest, there is an anchor. And that anchor is the hope that God the Holy Ghost has spread and shed abroad in our hearts. It's a hope that can't possibly be ashamed as we will look at next week. It is a hope that carries with it God's assurance, a hope that cannot fail. In one sense, our faith looks backwards, and we put our trust in what Christ has done for us. Our hope looks forward with the same assurance to what He will do when He completes His work of redemption in us, a work that cannot fail. And so those three things are the first three things Paul tells us of the fruit of our justification, peace with God, access to His presence, and the hope of His glory that is shed abroad in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for these things that we can't begin to grasp in all of their magnificence. When we think even of these three benefits of our justification, our hearts can scarcely take it in. Thank you for that peace that cannot be destroyed. Thank you for the access by which we can come into your presence now. Thank you for the hope that carries our souls. We ask these things and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.